Good morning, everybody. Happy Sabbath to you. I'm Linda Ojala. Anyway, Tim and Christy are on vacation, finally, at last together, and we're glad for that. That leaves us filling in for him, though, and so I'm filling in today on the lesson number 10, and it's called Husbands and Wives Together at the Cross. Shall we bow for prayer? (laughs) Dear Heavenly Father, we have so much to learn We're all on this journey. We all need you and each other so much. But we stumble. We do crazy things. We pray that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit today and always to show us the dark corners of our hearts, to clean out the messy rooms, to turn on the light and just clear everything out that doesn't belong in us and put your Holy Spirit in there instead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So love and marriage, husbands and wives, what does the Bible say about it? What do we think about it? So I looked at children ages 5 to 10, and they were asked about love and marriage and what they thought about it. And I'm just going to give you a few of their responses that I enjoyed. My mother says to look for a man who's kind. That's what I'll do. I'll find somebody who's kind, tall, and handsome. (laughs) One of you should know how to write a check, because even if you have tons of love, there are still going to be a lot of bills. <laughs> That's true. Love will find you, even if you're trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from it since I was five, but the girls keep finding me. <laughs> this is age eight. <laughs> Don't do things like have smelly green sneakers. You might get attention, but attention ain't the same as love. (laughs) Dates are for having fun, and people should use them to get to know each other. Even boys have something to say if you listen long enough. (laughs) Be a good kisser. It might make your wife forget that you never take out the trash. So that's what our kids are watching from us and what they're getting from it. Let's see what the Bible says. Husbands, this is our memory verse. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church not having any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So if we break this down, it might look like this. Husbands, love your wives, I put first. And how? It's just a, it's just a tree, kind of. Husbands, love your wives, how? Just as Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. Why? That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present to her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but she should be holy and without blemish. So this gave me thoughts to ponder, and I'd like us to ponder them today. Does any of this look like what we see in marriages today? No. I know many of us have been married before, married now, maybe never married, but... We all have multiple experiences, I'm sure, in the goodness and badness of marriage. 
Do we see husbands taking a leadership role in the spiritual well-being of their wife and children? Or do they just bring home the bacon and watch or play sports or play the stock market or listen to politics or view pornography, whatever? Is this what we more often see from a husband? Do we think God put men over women because he's bigger and stronger and can overpower her, force her to comply? Or did God predict this is what would happen in a selfish relationship after sin, but that women would desire a man's love and protection anyway? Do we, this is, this is a thought that came to me. I think the Lord looks at things very differently than we do. Do we understand that the husband's leadership role is like the leadership of the chief executive officer, the CEO of a company, of his family corporation? In a corporation, the buck stops at the CEO, no matter what happens underneath. Whether the company succeeds or fails uh, reflects on his leadership responsibilities and skills at guiding the people in his company. So do you think that God will hold men accountable for how those under their leadership fared? Were their families nurtured and enriched to their full potential? Were they given a role model? to emulate and guidance for success in this life and the next, or were they selfishly used and abused, controlled, and criticized? I've seen both sides of this. Usually I share a little bit about myself when I'm talking so people get to know me a little bit more, and and you can probably understand why this lesson has uh, taught me so much and been influential, uh, because I have a lot of experience in this. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen both sides of a marital experience. I had an 18-year not-so-good marriage, and I'm in a currently 26-year much better marriage. So I've seen both sides of the coin. At one point, I wanted to do women's ministries talks because I have a lot of heart for what goes on behind closed doors, where everybody's fine, but not so behind closed doors. So I, you know, I am, I've, one time I talked to a neighbor of mine about my interest in maybe doing women's ministries uh, weekends or something, and she says, it's just a shame that all you know is a bad marriage. <laughs> like, <laughs> at that time, that is all I knew. In fact, I was so uh, fearful about marriage that I, when people said, I'm engaged, I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> is this really the way you want to go? <laughs> Think clearly about this. <laughs> I would tell my kids, better no marriage than a bad marriage. And that's sad because now they're at 39 and 42 and have never been married. I think they took me at my word. You know, they they haven't found somebody that they feel like they could have a good marriage with, so they have not gotten married. I I recall visiting a church, not in Tennessee, but visiting a church shortly after my divorce years and years ago. When an older minister there, he decried all these young people getting divorces these days. He asked what he and other ministers could do to help stem this tide. Well, unbeknownst to him, I had already taken note of this man before he talked to me. And I saw the body language between him and his wife. And I've been trained in sales, and we look at body language all the time. So I saw that he was not speaking with her, not having anything to do with her. It was like she was non-existent to him. So, what do you think my response to him was? I said, you can truly love your wife. Mm. 
and show what a loving marriage looks like. Well, I found out shortly thereafter that he hadn't hadn't married his wife for love. He had married his wife so he could become a minister. You remember? You couldn't become a minister unless you were married. So he found the wife. My heart went out to both of them because they're living in such an unloving marriage. And I know from experience, there's no loneliness like the loneliness of a loveless marriage. And I see others have experienced this as well. Sunday's lesson, we're talking about counsel to Christian wives. So the sticky point for a lot of women is the submission part. I think you'll all agree. So now's the time for submission. What the meaning is in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary says, a legal agreement to submit to the decision of arbitrators. Or an act of submitting something, like for inspection or consideration, something submitted like a manuscript, or the condition of being submissive, like humble, compliant. An act of submitting to the authority or control of another. So I think this week's lesson, if you've studied it on Sunday, this week's lesson did a fine job, really, of interpreting scriptures, where Paul invites Christian wives to submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord, clarifying that he's discussing the submission of wives to their own husbands, I guess not to men in general. When Paul says wives are to do so as to the Lord, does he mean a wife to submit to her husband as though he were Christ? Or instead, does he mean that Christ is the truest and highest focus of her submission? What do you think? Christ is first. Yes. The lesson goes on to say, wives are themselves believers who must ultimately honor Christ over their husbands. Amen. So the lesson goes on to say, by analogy, the husband is the head of the wife with the church's faithfulness to Christ serving as a model for the wife's loyalty to her husband. The passage presumes a loving, caring marriage and not a dysfunctional one. This verse should not be interpreted to allow any form of domestic abuse. So, uh, this brought me to one of Tim Jennings' books, Could It Be This Simple? I'm going to read you a little um, case study where he had somebody come into his office that was in a circumstance where they were uh, not in a good marriage. Uh, This is page 54 of Could It Be This Simple? A Biblical Model for the Healing of the Mind. Very good book. Recommend it to everybody. So, I guess it starts on page 53. During my residency, I counseled a 35-year-old Hispanic woman belonging to a Pentecostal denomination who had suffered with depression for many years. As we worked together, Sophie disclosed how her particular culture and faith group expected women to subordinate themselves to their husbands. Her denomination would not permit women to speak in her church. If she had a question, she must wait till she was back home to ask her husband, nor did any of the church's committees or boards include women. At home, she experienced similar treatment. The husband was head of the home, and the wife was to do his bidding. 
Repeatedly, she heard that God had designed society in this way for two reasons. Women had been deceived and had led men into sin. And though God had created man in the image of God, he had created women in the image of man. Through the years, she had surrendered to the constant degradation of women, of women and had permitted her husband to control her. As is the case of the law of liberty is violated. Sophie had significant amounts of unresolved anger and resentment toward her husband as well as the deity who would ordain such a system. Also, she found it extremely difficult to think for herself and had lost much of her confidence, esteem, and worth. As her individuality slowly faded away, she was silently dying inside. She was in the process of becoming a shadow person, a pale imitation of her husband. As we worked together, Sophie came to understand the principles of the law of liberty and began to apply them to her life. Shortly after she began to reason for herself and to exercise her individuality and autonomy, though, her husband intruded into one of our sessions. (laughs) Marching in with Bible in hand, he slammed it down on my desk and said, tell my wife the Bible says a a wife is to be submissive to her husband. As he said it, I noticed Sophie's body posture change. Prior to her husband's entrance, she had seemed at ease, sitting up, bright-eyed, smiling, and talking without hesitation. But as her husband made his demand, she slowly sank down in her chair, her head slumped so that her chin touched her chest, her shoulders rolled inward, and she brought her hands in between her legs. She had assumed the appearance of a sad, scared child. And it was absolutely clear to me that she feared that her hope of freedom was about to be destroyed. To her husband, I responded, It's true that the Bible teaches that wives are to submit to their husbands. If you read the very next verse, though, the Bible also states that husbands are to treat their wives as Christ treated the church, sacrificing himself for her. Now, when you begin sacrificing yourself for your wife's happiness, I'm sure she'll have no problem submitting to that type of treatment. As I spoke, I noticed that she sat up straight, (laughs) thrust her shoulders back, and wore a big smile. Fortunately for Sophie, her husband really desired to do what was right, but was himself a victim of serious misconceptions about God and his methods. He accepted the redirection given and began attending marital therapy. Together, they developed a healthy, mutually rewarding relationship that respected individuality and autonomy. That really, um, you know, touched me. Short story, but still, it's what happens all the time. So that's kind of what I'm looking at in this week's lesson, is what is functional, what is dysfunctional. I um, have a quote here from Ellen White that says, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, if you value what she says, this is from Adventist Home, if the husband is a coarse, rough, Boisterous, egotistical, harsh, and overbearing man, let him never utter the word that the husband is the head of the wife and that she must submit to him in everything. For he is not the Lord and he is not the husband in the true sense, significance of the term. So I thought that was interesting. Jesus is held up as our example and he never married, but perhaps we can glean some insight by looking at Jesus' example of servanthood. 
So Mark 10, 42 to 45 says, when the disciples were, uh, I'm just saying when the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest, this is where the quote starts. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life for a ransom for many. So many people think the role of wife or a mother is on the lower end of the spectrum. And I couldn't find this quote or didn't have time to look for it, but Ellen White also mentions that in God's eyes, the role of a mother is the highest role. We think the President of the United States, whatever, you know, and actually that's a pyramid turned upside down. In God's view, just like in almost everything else, his view is opposite to what we think because that person is training other souls, for hopefully for the kingdom. It just seems like a lot of meaningly, meaningless, r- repetitive diapers and feeding and sickness and one thing and another that you're dealing with. You know, they say one who rocks the cradle rules the world. And that's right. That's right. So the wife is often looked at as treated like a servant, not only by her husband, but by her whole family. She may feel as if she's less capable or not worthy of respect or appreciation. But again, the Adventist home says, the best way to educate children to respect their father and mother is to give them the opportunity of seeing the father offering kindly attentions to the mother and the mother rendering respect and reverence to the father. It's by beholding love in their parents that the children are led to obey the fifth commandment and heed the injunction, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then another text that came to me about Jesus' example, John 13, 2-5, talking about the Last Supper. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So what did he do with all this universal power at his disposal? He washed feet. Got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I, I find one day I was studying uh, the Bible and I just felt the need to connect the Last Supper with creation, which I would never have thought of myself. And I thought, why? It's because these are examples, that and, and of course the crucifixion, but these are examples of what God does with power. With power, he makes the world. With the Sabbath, he shows you how he wields the power. He gives you time to think about it, to learn to love him and know him, to come to your own decision about how you feel about him. Here he had all power in heaven and earth. And what did he do? Served. And every one of these disciples, not just Judas, Judas was going to betray him, but every one of them deserted him, denied him that very evening. <laughs> so Jesus is a, an example for all of us, not just wives and husbands, you know, but wives and husbands both. So I think we're talking about servanthood in marriage by both husband and wife. Years ago, Ken and I attended a uh, marriage seminar. I had attended ones where women ran. But this one was run by men. 
I think it was the son of James Dobson, Ryan Dobson, but I looked online and I couldn't find that they're running these anymore. But I still remember things from, and this was given from a man's standpoint, which I found really fascinating because men think differently than women. So we came away with three three major things that, that really changed my thinking. They were up there in jeans and sweatshirt, and they were talking about sports. How marriage is like a sport team. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. Think about it, though. In a sport, football or baseball, does one member of the team win or lose? All of them win. Either the whole team wins or the whole team loses. Anything that causes a one team member to lose is going to cause the loss of the entire team. And so one of the things they really pushed on in this was to find couples need, when they come up with a disagreement or issue, they, anything they can do to find a solution that's win-win is the, what they should be seeking for. Take it, either if it's prayer, reading, counseling, asking for wise advice, doing research, If either one of you loses, you both lose. Your team loses. And if you love your spouse, I like to be right. I think Ken will. (laughs) Once I've attached myself to an idea, it's hard to move me off. I often pray to God, please, you know, keep cracking at this nut here because I'm a hard, you know, once I embrace something, I wholly embrace it. And it's a lot to move me on to something else. But I'm here and come in reason. <laughs> so, but I, I, this, this part of their presentation in Marriage of a Dance uh, is a dance made me think, if I always am right, what does that make him? Wrong. Always wrong. If you really love somebody, would you want them to be always wrong? No. 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 Or would you want to be the one that's always wrong? No. Nobody wants that. You know, so it's important to realize you don't always have to be right. It's good to actually have the other person be right and have to say, well, you were right on this one, you know, and enjoy it. (laughs) I mean, we all make mistakes, right? We're never going to be 100% right. And, And really, when you think about it, people hate perfect people. They really do. You know, perfect people, nobody likes them. Is they just too good to be true, and they seem above everybody, and and so if you make mistakes, people go, "Wow, she's human. Good. <laughs> it's okay to be wrong, but make yours a winning team." That was item number one. Two, get a PhD in your spouse. Well, I hadn't really thought of that, but they had a heart pillow, much like this is the heart pillow I have. This is the pillow that my dad got when he was in having heart surgery, and every, all the family members and the staff, they wrote on it, nice little things. My dad's been gone almost six years now, but I still have his heart. <laughs> anyway, so they had a heart pillow, and they said, you know, when you first meet somebody, you want to know all, everything about this heart. You're so careful with the heart. You want to learn everything about the heart the person, everything that's so interesting about them. And then as time goes on, you start getting involved with other things. And then you start getting more and more interested in 
other things than the person's heart or anything about them. And before long, you've lost the heart, you know? And I thought, well, they used a visual aid like that. And I thought, that's true. You know, pretty soon you start thinking you know everything. I'll tell Ken sometimes, I know you better than you know yourself. (laughs) Because you're at the front row seat of the decisions and the actions and the speaking and all the stuff. And you pretty much think you know them. And so in essence, you kind of have them in a box, in a mental box you've created based on prior responses. And I've been placed in those kind of mental boxes in a relationship too. Always treated as if I was going to do the same thing I did 20 years ago when this happened. Not allowing a chance that I might have actually learned something in 20 years. Be be given a chance to grow and to actually respond differently than I might have 20 years ago. So... I know in in many cases I've seen couples, and I've been a couple, where you did more and more part because now you thought you knew everything. And so what's the point? I mean, now it's more interesting to go on this trip alone, to do this thing with buddies, to do all this kind of stuff is more interesting than being with the person you've been with for so long and you already know everything about them. You end up being like, what, roommates in the same house, just roommates. So this uh, group emphasized the importance of learning things together. There's always new things you can learn because people are always changing a little as they age and so on. So there's new things you can learn from them, but there's also new things you can learn with them. Maybe, mo- maybe both of you have never painted before or done, you know, pottery or anything like that. Eve does wonderful pottery. <laughs> And, but maybe it's something you both haven't done and you could both enjoy learning together and do it together and have an experience together. Find something you can learn together. Um, I think we should learn a lesson from Eve in the Garden of Eden in that if she had not strayed off from her husband and her God, we wouldn't be where we are today, would we? I don't think so. There's a strength in teamwork. There's There's... A strength in doing things together and learning and being appreciative of each other and supportive of each other. So that that thought was keep digging for the veins of gold in the other person and learning new things together. Point two, learn about your spouse. The third point I want to I got from this was. He's got a comment. Hey, Linda, I, I was just going to say I, I think I've heard Tim say this as well, but I know I've heard others recently say that General Patton in Europe would tell his fellow generals or colonels or whatever they were that if everybody's thinking the same thing, somebody's not thinking. (laughs) Good point. Yeah, I agree. You know... um, Value the other the thoughts other than yours. Mm -hmm. Everybody can do the obvious takeaway here, but the the fact is that the both parties need to really bring their best, bring their A game to the, to the uh, yeah. discussion. Yeah, hence the PhD. You know, we struggle hard, strive hard to get our degrees and all this kind of thing. Do we strive that hard to get a degree in our spouse? And to own your own stuff. Yeah. Just me owning my stuff. Yeah. But the other person owning his stuff too. Well, I mean, look at 
Look at Adam. When they sinned, what was Adam's first response? Yeah. It's her fault. Yeah. What was hers? It's, it's the, <laughs> the serpent you created's fault. Yeah. Everyone was willing to pass the buck, and that hasn't really changed at all since yeah. then. But owning your own stuff, like Brenda said, is, is very important. Don't brush it off. Oh, if it hadn't been for their behavior, I wouldn't do this. If they'd only behave like that, I'd do this. You know, Be the person you should be, no matter how people behave around you. Well, this third point that came from the, the seminar I found very interesting, and I found that I totally agreed with it. Being unfaithful happens long before actual adultery. Mm. <clears throat> so they say unfaithfulness begins when you create fear in your spouse. And they had a lot of funny examples for how they created fear in, this, in their spouses. But men and women are different. Wives long for love and security. Men must have admiration and respect. They need it like air. And I didn't realize that I was one of two girls, you know, and my father was a workaholic, rarely saw him. But so I didn't understand that at all. So that's why the Bible verse that says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, doesn't really work very well in a marriage because they don't need what you need. They need something different than what you needed. But the important thing is to find what that is out. I read a book uh, by John Gray called What Your Mother Couldn't Teach You and Your Father Didn't Know, and I highly recommend it. I read it between marriages, shall we say, because I was, you know, I didn't want to pick the same person in a different face. I've known people closely that have just picked the same person repeatedly, but just a different face and the same kind of person. I didn't want that. So it's... hmm? You mentioned something about fear. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on that? I will be, yes. So, if these needs are denied, fear will enter into the relationship, and, they will, and that will turn into self-preservation then, because now you're afraid that you don't feel secure, you don't feel loved. They don't feel respected, they don't feel admired. That self-preservation tends to... Uh, make you pull into yourself and you lose the intimate relationship with your spouse and that's when unfaithfulness has begun. You are not being faithful to that relationship or that spouse. You are denying them the very thing they need the most. And so adultery is just in the end point of that process. But what I was going to say about John Gray's book what your mother couldn't teach you and your father didn't know, I would highly recommend that book because I compare it to if somebody gave you a gun and a bunch of bullets and said, hit that fly on the wall back there. You'd be like, you know, bullet after bullet after bullet, and that's not working, so more bullets, maybe an automatic weapon, I'll get it. But it doesn't work. So you just try harder doing the things that don't work. So what he suggests is, What he teaches you to do in the book is how to hit the fly on the wall with one bullet. Instead of working harder at doing the wrong thing, you work much easier doing the right thing. And what he teaches you is the difference between the needs. And I'll give you a personal example. In the process of learning between marriages, I read this book. And my ex-husband came in to get the kids and stuff. And I said, well, you know, I'm trying to learn 
you know, what I did wrong and try to, I grew up with women, you know, and so I didn't know. It wasn't like I was mean, I was just stupid, (laughs) you know, I didn't know. And so he says, oh yeah, what did you learn? You know, this naughty little attitude like this. And I said, I learned that I, I never really knew how to tell you that I appreciated the hard work you put in and all that you did to try to take care of your family. And he changed, he changed from a snotty little attitude to crying on the spot. I had hit the fly on the wall with just an understanding, because before that in our marriage, I'd try to compliment him. And I would say, oh, this, you're one, you know, this. And he would just say, oh, he couldn't believe the compliment. So he'd get mad at me for complimenting him because it wasn't what he thought he believed or I was just making it up or I was just, I didn't know what to do. So I thought, well, maybe compliments don't appeal to him. So maybe I should stop complimenting him. (laughs) Well, that didn't work really either. So I just didn't know how. But in the process of learning in between marriages, I learned that it's, it's how you say things and also the type of person that is. That's why it's important to know the other person. Because some people are sanguine. In my day, they called it sanguine. They have numbers and colors and everything these days. But sanguine person is, you know, outgoing and in the now and, you know, all of this. And they, they'll gush. They'll say, oh, you're just wonderful. And I can say this to Ken because he was brought up by a very self-confident mother who, and father, but the mother, I think, had a good influence on his self-confidence. So when we have an issue, he knows that we're just talking about an issue. We're not talking about his worth as a human being, you know. My first marriage, that wasn't the case. He had been an abused child. And so if you tried to bring up something, suddenly you're, you're you know, <laughs> removing his personhood, you know, and he came out with a, a, the best defense is a good offense kind of thing. And so... It was a shock to me. Some people you have to be very, very specific with. Those people, and I have a daughter like that who's, who has to be specific. When you give an appreciation, you have to be specific. I really appreciate it when you did this. They can, they can see that that's something they did, and they can see, okay, I can accept that. But if you said, you're wonderful, they're so self-critical, they can't accept that wonderful statement. And so you have to know your, your audience, so to speak. And with my ex-husband, I began to understand why he did what he did. didn't make it any easier to live with, but I began to understand how children who are broken respond to things, why the things are so hurtful uh, to them, but a marriage too. And that John Gray book really helped me to understand how to um, aim, <laughs> And so it really, it really uh, was too late for that marriage and everything, but I really did want to learn how to give respect, how to give appreciation in a manner that could be accepted by that person versus you might have to change it out for the other person. So re- creating fear, don't create fear in the other person. That's the beginning of infidelity. That's the beginning of unfaithfulness, is the fear that you create in someone. Um, you're out for long periods of time and you, don't have a, you have enough to clue as to where you are. In a wife who values security and love, that's going to create fear. You know, for the husband who, who may spend wildly and doesn't have any, any kind of security financially, that'll create fear also. 
in the wife who needs security. And if he doesn't seem loving, that'll also create fear. So I found this to be in a very interesting point they made where you normally think, well, he ran off with somebody. But before he ran off with somebody, there was usually a trajectory that headed that way. And so the third point was don't create fear in your relationship. So looking, <laughs> looking at, I, I highly recommend that book. It was very helpful, very helpful to me who was brought up with a bunch of girls and women and didn't know squat about how, how to deal with a man or anything, what they needed. Very helpful. Um, Monday's lesson, let's just move on to um, the church is the bride of Christ. And so this lesson points out some good things as well. He draws creatively on the customs and the roles of an ancient wedding. Well, I would say that some of the things in the ancient wedding are still happening today. I was in Toastmasters for years, and many people from other cultures joined it in order to learn to speak better English and communicate better. So they told their stories, and they gave pictures. And it was really interesting. Uh, When this talks about, I'll just, we're pretty familiar with this, so I think I'll just go love the church as a bride. Two, he gives himself as the bride price. He bathes his bride, number three. Four, he speaks a word of promise. And five, he prepares and adorns the bride. When the bride is finally presented to her groom, which, so Jesus is actually getting us ready to meet him. (laughs) She's fabulously beautiful, appearing in flawless splendor. Uh, So for those of you who don't have relatives, friends, or know much about different cultures than the United States, you might be interested to know how a bride might look prepared for her husband. Can you see this? I mean, is this adorned or what? (laughs) They had beautiful dresses. They explained, and this people who would tell their stories, they showed pictures of their weddings. They would have like five days or a week of wedding and I didn't realize that each day they presented, they, they invited different people. It wasn't the same people all week long. Might be, this day might be just for intimate family. This day might be for friends. This day might be for the whole community. And they had different beautiful dresses every day. Wow. Oh, it's just fascinating. Far different than what we do here. You know. And so when it talked about Jesus doing everything for us to make us ready, I think is the gist of that, of the um, Monday and Tuesday, the bride of, of Christ, is that really and truly Jesus is the one that presents us to himself. And if you think of this as being adorned on the outside, the Bible talks about the adornment we should be concerned with is the adornment on the inside, that that's what's beautiful. That's what needs to be adorned. Proverbs 24, the first few verses says, By wisdom a house is built, through understanding it's established, but through knowledge its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. Sometimes people have said, this class we studied more deeply than they're used to. And I, you know, they said, well, that's not going to save you. As I said, it may not save you, but it fills your rooms with rare and beautiful treasures. That you aren't just kind of a bleak internal blob inside that you actually God intends to adorn you inside like these folks are adorned on the outside 
Rare and beautiful treasures are hidden. He wants to hide those inside you. And then when you meet with other people, talk with other people, you have a big room full of treasures to share with other people as they need the treasures, you know? I, uh, I found this text to be, in Proverbs 24, to be one of my very favorite things. It shows you how you are built. By wisdom, you come to God. Through understanding, you become attached to God and know him. But through knowledge about him and time with him, your rooms are filled with internal rare and beautiful treasures. And so when I think of a, of a woman in a marriage or a bride being prepared by Christ for him, that's what I think of. So and then this talks about in Tuesday's lesson, a betrothal. Uh, Christ offers himself up for the church, preparation for the wedding ceremony. He, he you know, they prepare for the ceremony. They get their, uh, their stuff together, <laughs> you know. Um, the wedding ceremony itself. I also found it, 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 it had a description here that I found to be true and interesting. Ancient weddings often began with a nighttime parade. The groom and his entourage would gather at the groom's home the couple's new home, and with grand ceremony began a procession, lit by torches and accompanied by joyful, lilting music and great rejoicing, the crowd jostles toward the home of the father of the bride. Gathering up the bride there or meeting the bride's own procession on the way, the, the parade would convey the couple to their new home, where the guests would settle into a week-long feast, culminating in the wedding ceremony when the bride would be presented to the groom. When Paul portrays Christ presenting the church to himself, he alludes to this grand parade, the moment of presentation. He provides a moving portrait of Christ's return in a future wedding ceremony. I found it interesting that the wedding ceremonies are about a week long, because somewhere Ellen White talks about the, the travel to the New Jerusalem takes about a week. But I, again, I ran out of time to actually look for where that was. But I, I mean, that's just an aside. Does anybody remember the story of um, Johnny Lingo? When I was in school, decades and decades and decades ago, <laughs> they showed us this movie. And what it was was, a, you know, a, like a um, natives kind of in a, in a culture where they, they bought a wife for so many chickens or cows or whatever. And in this story, without going into great detail, because at this age I can't remember the great detail anymore, <laughs> but the point still remains, and that is he, he decided this girl was put down by everybody around her. You know, oh, she's ugly, oh, this, oh, that. And she was kind of shy and always wanted to hide and would wear her hair kind of over her face. So everybody thought she's ugly. She was talk, talked about, treated that way. So Johnny Lingo comes along, meets her, sees value in her, decides that he's going to marry her. Shock, this ugly girl's getting married to this handsome man for, I think it was like 10 cows. Nobody had ever been paid 10 cows for a bride before. And here he's paying, he, the, the father would practically give her away. You know, she was so unloved. Well, he, he, later they asked, why'd you give 10 cows? He said, because I, all, I wanted her to know she was more valuable than anybody there. So he takes her away and treats her with love, you assume. Then he comes back 
bringing her back to see her family and all that. And when he does, she's gorgeous. She's got her hair back. She's smiling. She's confident. She's just beautiful, which she always was, but it was hidden. And so to my young, you know, elementary school mind, (laughs) I thought, see the difference that love makes? See the difference that love makes. And here he valued her and brought out her beauties. And that's what a true relationship of a husband to loving his wife will do. Bring out her value. Help her to become a better person. Nurture her dreams and so on. Wednesday's lesson says, love your wife as you love yourself. So Paul challenges Christian husbands to turn from the expected practices of their time and seek to match Christ's tender love. And um, Paul invites the men to identify with their wives and treat her as they would treat themselves. But sometimes people aren't very nice to themselves either. I read a book once called Princess. It was written by and about an unnamed Arabian uh, Arab princess. She was afraid to be named because of what might happen had they discovered it was her that wrote this book because it was truly an expose on the marriages the way they are today in some countries. I was shocked. I'll give you a few examples of the things I was shocked by. (laughs) We think we might have it bad, but If their husbands are displeased for any reason, the wife can be locked in a room the rest of her life. She can be drowned in a backyard pool or killed in many other ways with absolutely no legal recourse at all. No no issue with that. If a male is in the house, and she actually talked about an experience where a, a, a friend's, her brother's friend came to the house and, and tried to be friendly to her, um, she could be accused of sexual misconduct, even though she didn't do anything, she didn't welcome that, nothing happened, and stoned to death for that. But not him, of course. So it makes you think of that Bible thing where they were caught in adultery. Who was brought to be stoned? The woman. Who wasn't? <laughs> and yet they were caught in adultery. But only the woman suffered from this behavior, right? So... I watched a a stoning one time to understand what on earth they do. It was online. They dug a big hole. The woman was thrown into it. It, The hole was deep enough so just her head and maybe her upper shoulders showed. And so she couldn't get out. When she was thrown in there, she, she couldn't get out. But her head was, you know, I mean, so they could stone her to death. She couldn't get away. When a woman went out of the house, a woman must wear a hijab or a headscarf covering in some Arab areas or a burqa full body covering, which are usually black. No matter how hot it is, they have to wear black on top of the clothes they're wearing. It would be like being in an oven. But I noticed the men in the Arab countries generally wear white flowing outfits, which would reflect light <laughs> instead of embrace the light. I was at a uh, outdoors one time and I wore, it was cold, cool day, but I was wearing black slacks and the sun was out and my my legs actually started getting warm on a cool day just because of the black socks uh, uh, slacks being struck by the sun so you can imagine wearing a whole thing that's black in a hot arab world before a girl marries the woman of the potential husband come the women of the potential husband comes and inspects every part 
of the girl to make sure she has no defects. So think of the Bible story of Rachel and Leah. Why did Laban pawn Leah off on Jacob? Because she was defective. I've always really, I'm, I'm so blind, or have been until I just had my surgeries, that I couldn't see a big E. I'm that blind. I really relate to Leah. <laughs> you know, in those days, they didn't have anything that could fix you. You were just weak-eyed. And so he knew he could never get anybody to marry her because she was, defor- def- you know, she was not perfect. This is why uh, no one would ever marry her, and this is the only way he could get her off his hands is to pawn her off on Jacob. And yet, to point out, she was the one through whom the Messiah eventually came. I find it interesting that Leah was married to him first, and then she, then he got to marry Rachel. Uh, then she died in giving birth to the second child, Benjamin. Leah lived with him the rest of her life, and actually he was buried with Leah. She had all these children, and every children, if you read the names of the children, they're kind of sad. Now my husband will love me, <laughs> you know, all these different things. Had to kind of barter to have his uh, intimate relations with her husband. You know, I'll give you this if you'll let me sleep with him. But that's why we don't understand that. We don't do the defect thing, you know, here in our culture, but they do there, even today. The girl is thrown a party when she hits puberty. And at the party, without warning, the female's relatives will hold her down while her clitoris is surgically removed, usually without numbing. Um, They don't warn her at all. She has no idea that this is going to happen. And what happens is that they have scarring, and they can never enjoy sex. Actually, sex is painful. And so um, they do that so the women won't be promiscuous. The men don't care. I mean, they can be as promiscuous as they want, but... She can't have, enjoy sex her whole life then. But think of what the husbands are missing out. The husbands often will enjoy the pleasure of the wife. What if, the, what if it's pain every time? Women wear a lot of gold jewelry. You'll notice a lot of jewelry on this woman. Why? Because at any moment the husband could throw her out and what she's wearing might be all she has and she has to have something with her that she could live on. The husband holds her passport if she just has one, must give permission for her to travel. She can't drive herself anywhere, which would be hard to do wearing a burqa anyway, because if you've seen them, they only have these little places for you to see through. She can't walk anywhere without a family escort. These are the conditions that aren't just in the conditions of these days that, that Paul is talking about, trying to get away from this kind of thing. These conditions are today. So we can see that partly what the Bible does, partly what Jesus does, is give respect to women who weren't used to getting respect. So when we see the story of the woman at the Samaritan, I mean the Samaritan woman at the well, or the Syrophoenician woman, we, we see God going out of his way. In both cases, Jesus went there for that purpose only, to show them the way of salvation, to save them, to grant their requests, to show himself as the Messiah, and that he loved women and doesn't see a difference, really, between men and women or any race or anything. He just sees us as people. So Thursday, it gets to the one flesh model of marriage, 
And this says, by divine design, the marriage is intended to be a one flesh relationship with sexual unity mirrored in emotional and spiritual unity and emotional and spiritual unity bringing meaning to the sexual relationship. But in our world, it has become a method to control and dominate in many instances. You might have gone to or seen them or heard about the movie recently about trafficking of children and women. And how they're trying to work. First, they were focused on capturing the perpetrators. Now they're focusing on capturing the, getting the victims, <laughs> getting the, you know, rescuing. So the little bit after Psalm, uh, Proverbs 24, there's a, there's a verse that says, rescue the perishing, those staggering towards destruction. And if you say, we didn't know it, Does God not realize, know your heart? He knows you know there's a problem, but you're not doing anything about it. You're not rescuing people. You're not helping people to understand better how to have a relationship between husband and wife and God that is like the Trinity. We have really, really messed up, (laughs) I've got to say, as a culture in general. And so what is a Christian model supposed to do I mean, in this world, we're salt. We're the salt of the world. We're the light on the hill. This is, this is one example where we can be the salt. We can be on the hill. Friday, there's a, it talks further quotes, uh, further thoughts, talks about um, patriarchs and prophets mentioning that, so I, I put in here, patriarchs and prophets, page 34 and 35, so long as all created beings acknowledged the allegiance of love, there was perfect harmony throughout the universe of God. It was the joy of heavenly host to fulfill the purpose of their creator. They delighted in reflecting his glory and showing forth his praise. And while love to God was supreme, love for each other was confiding and unselfish. There was no note of discord to mar the celestial harmonies. And where are we wanting to head? There. So how can we prepare here? (laughs) Is by loving each other unselfishly, servant-like, lifting each other up, forgiving each other, loving each other. So we will not only be salt to the world, a light to the world, but people who, who we don't even talk to will be watching your lives, your marriages. How are they different from what we're experiencing? And Tim is very often quoted, there's no difference in, between religious families and irreligious families on all the bad things, on abuse, on incest, on everything. That should not be, right? That should not be. We are not, we are not showing that we're headed for heaven with that kind of thing going on. And yet I've had a divorce. Some others have here too, I know. And it was not anything you intended when you got married. The marriage wasn't an example of anything that you'd want your child to have, for example, or anything. So I think it's important that we, we value our team, make our team win, that we get a PhD in each other, that we don't create fear in the other person. We give them what they need because we love them so much, both ways, not one above the other, but we are a team that we, to be a winning team and to win salvation and so on. We need God to enter our hearts 
to make us like him, to unite us with each other. And the Bible even talks about who knows if a believing wife might save an unbelieving husband or vice versa. You know, even if you're not in the best of all marriages, there's still things that you can do to work your way in that, in that uh, direction, to be ready for heaven. Adventist Home says, Many husbands stop at the words, Wife, submit yourselves. But we'll read the conclusion of the same injunction, which is, As it's fit in the Lord. God requires that the wife shall keep the fear and glory of God ever before her. Entire submission is to be made only to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has purchased her as his own child by the infinite price of his life. There is one who stands higher than the husband to the wife. It is her Redeemer. And her submission to her husband is to be rendered as God has directed, as it is fit in the Lord. She also said, Do not try to compel each other to yield to your wishes. You cannot do this and retain each other's love. Be kind, patient, and forbearing, considerate, and courteous. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful that you give us an example of love in your word, but also in your actions when you came to earth and were Jesus. We see how you loved everybody, how you healed people, how you went out of your way to make women feel noticed and appreciated and and happy and understanding and full of salvation. It was a woman, the Samaritan woman, that you first said that you were the Messiah to. It was a woman who understood that you were about to die and poured expensive ointment on your feet as a preparation for death when none of the other disciples seemed to get it. You love all of us, not one more than another, but everybody the same. And we should love each other. Please put that love in our hearts. Help us to forgive and love and try our best to understand and to be work together as, a, as your team here on this earth, as a light and a salt to this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.